Well, please uh, turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, page 1153 of the Church Bibles is uh, where we're up to and hopefully inside your service sheets as well is an outline of uh, where we'll be heading as we look at that uh, first part of chapter 12 together this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, page 1153. What do you think are the marks of a spiritual person, the the signs, the evidence that authenticate somebody as genuinely spiritual, as someone who it's obvious that the Spirit is powerfully at work in their life? What about a church, a whole church community? What defines a spiritual church, a place where the Spirit is moving powerfully amongst them? I ask this because as we continue our journey through 1 Corinthians that we come to the next big issue that the Corinthians have written to Paul about. You may remember back in chapter 7 verse 1 in this part of the letter he's responding to various requests, various questions that they have put to him on different issues. And now we come to the next issue in chapter 12 verse 1 now about spiritual gifts. Or more literally, uh, the issue is about spiritual things or spiritual people. That's what they want to talk about. And I suspect while other issues have mattered to the Corinthians along the way, we've seen many issues in this part of the letter. We've seen the issue of marriage and of sex, of men and women. We've seen issues to do with meals and decisions, the Lord's Supper, you name it. But as there is a pause in the conversation... It's almost as if as we get to chapter 12, the Corinthians are saying, let's go deep, Paul. Let's have a spiritual conversation. What of the things of, not just normal things, but what of the things of the Spirit? Let's talk about that, Paul, because that's what the more mature amongst us uh, want to talk about. And so the conversation begins and it will continue all the way through to the end of chapter 14 on this very issue. From uh, Paul's response, it seems the Corinthians are seeking some sort of confirmation about their approach to spirituality, both individually and as a church. And we've seen that pattern all the way through this section of the letters. They ask a question seeking confirmation. We saw it back in chapter 8, verse 10, where essentially they were saying, we are free to do as we wish, aren't we, Paul? Given our knowledge of the gospel, given the maturity that we have in that knowledge, uh, we're free to do as we wish. No, says Paul, you're not, as we saw. In chapter 11, uh, we saw that uh, their claim was that the gospel means that there is no difference between men and women. Well, no, says Paul, the gospel says the opposite. It restores the God-given complementary distinctions between men and women. And then again in chapter 11, the second half, it's a response again. It's as if they were saying it's okay for us to gather as a church in a way that reflects our social distinctions. That's the way God would have it. No, says Paul, you have put on Christ, you are his body, you are one. And now the next question. As we start chapter 12, I suspect the question is something along these lines. Are are there not certain signs, Paul, that the Spirit of God is at work in a church? Aren't there not obvious uh, markers of such a place? What, Paul, are the marks of a, a deeply spiritual person? They ask this because I think they're pretty sure they fit the bill. All the way through this letter there's been signs of their confidence in their own spirituality. Early on it was the eloquence of their leaders, the leaders who had come through Corinth. No fumbling words here, they were impressive leaders. Surely the Spirit had led to that blessing. Well there was, as we've just talked about in chapters 8 to 10, their understanding of freedom, a sign surely of their spiritual maturity. 
And now, as we'll see through these chapters, chapters 12 to 14, it seems as if they're claiming that their exercise of certain gifts demonstrated just how powerfully the Spirit was at work in them. In their cases, we'll see perhaps most clearly in chapter 14, it was the gift of tongues that they were holding up as their badge of honour, their sure sign that they were spiritual people. Surely, Paul, that is a definitive sign, something to aspire to if you are a spiritual person. Now, before we begin Paul's response, it's worth asking ourselves what are the marks or the signs that we see in our own church family that would give us confidence that, yes, the Spirit is powerfully at work in our midst. What makes us a spiritual church? Could it be flourishing numbers that God is adding to our number? Surely that makes us spiritual, perhaps more so than others? Or is it our rigour with the Word of God, the way the Word of God is handled with great care and diligence? Surely that's a definitive mark of the Spirit's work here. Is that what we'd point to if someone was to ask, where can I see the Spirit at work in your church? Would we point to our rigour? What about our music? Again, clearly the Spirit has blessed us abundantly with many gifted musicians to lead us in praising our God. Is that a definitive mark? I mean, if you were here on Easter Sunday night as we had our Easter celebration, just the the enormity of the amount of gifts that God has showered on this one church musically, such an amazing night. Is that the definitive mark of the Spirit at work here? Or zooming closer, not just to the church, but to you personally. What makes you a spiritual person? Perhaps it's spiritual experiences that you'd cite, impressive dramatic experiences that you might have had. We'll see some of that in these chapters, the experiences of tongues or healing. Uh, I received a letter just this week inviting me and us as a church to open ourselves more to this deeper level of spiritual experience. Is that the mark that says you're spiritual? Or perhaps it's your spiritual habits, your pietism, if you will. Uh, My spirituality is a private thing, but I know I am spiritual. I read my Bible, I pray. You might not see it, but I'm a spiritual person. Or perhaps it's your spiritual progress. You're growing more and more in knowledge. Is that the mark that you are a spiritual person, that God's spirit is powerfully at work in you? Or whatever mark we may point to individually or as a body, as a church, I suspect we have much to learn from Paul's response over these three chapters. He's going to teach us clearly on spiritual things. He does so that we may know what a spiritual person and a spiritual church looks like. And so let's begin Paul's response to the Corinthians. they looking for confirmation of their own spiritual credentials and here it comes in chapter 12 verse 1. Paul begins his response as he, as he began an earlier response in chapter 8. He begins by bursting their self-confident spiritual bubble. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. His concern is that when it comes to spiritual things that they may be completely clueless, which is of course the absolute last thing that the Corinthians thought they were. It's a pattern that we've seen repeated throughout this letter. Chapter 8, they declared boldly, we know. His response, you don't know as you ought. And now we are spiritual, seems to have been their claim throughout this letter. Could it be, says Paul, that you are clueless about spiritual things? That's his suspicion. And with all the issues that we've already seen throughout this letter, we have every reason to share his concern. But his concern here seems to be about their past. You see it there in verse 2. 
Not long ago, they knew nothing of the things of the Spirit of God. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Oh, they were spiritual in their past. There was a spirit at work in them, but it wasn't the Spirit of God. It was the spirit Paul referred to back in chapter 2 of this letter, the spirit of the world. It was a spirit that uh, we're told here led them astray, more literally deceived them, lied to them. They'd been spiritual, as all people are, Christian or otherwise. But it was a deceptive form of spirituality where we worship not God but idols, where we're not led by that spirit into a relationship with the one true God but the spirit of the world leads us into a relationship with nothing more than mute idols. And in chapter 10, if you can remember, we saw that while such idols in and of themselves are mute, lifeless nothings, that behind them is the spirit that has led, them, led us to worship them, Satan himself. It shouldn't surprise us then that the spirituality that marks our world is a deceptive lie, for Satan is the father of lies. The spirit of the world that was in the Corinthians and was in us is a spirit of rebellion against God. A spirit that's ambition is to secure our own honour. The spirituality that marks uh, this spirit's work is utterly man-centred. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says uh, this of Satan's ambition. His ambition is to blind our eyes to the glorious goodness of God. That's his goal. It is the spirit that was at work in us as it was the Corinthians causing us to become increasingly obtuse to the genuine things of the Spirit, deeply self-focused, lovers of pomp and power and prestige. That's this Spirit's work. The work of the Spirit of the world leaves us seeking to make much of ourselves. And is that not the dream of the Western world? To be significant? Advance yourself through hard work and innovation and ingenuity and creativity and you can have it all. The world becomes a theatre for me to make much of myself. And again, don't we see that in our world, in the educational structures of our world or popular culture, perhaps even in our own families? Under the influence of such a spirit, the world is a place of worship, of course it is, but not of God, but of ourselves. And that's our world. And that's who the Corinthians were and we with them not long ago. The spirit of the age was at work in us, leading us astray to the place where we actually believed that the most glorious reason we exist was to glorify ourselves. Every moment, every opportunity, every gift, every talent I have is to be marshalled, is to be enlisted towards that great cause, me. And as we've already seen in this letter, this deceitful spirit can influence uh, the way we make decisions. We saw that in chapters 8 to 10. It can influence how we understand freedom. And now Paul will show us, and this is perhaps most helpful, I believe, that this same spirit has the power to influence the shape of our life together as a church. Even here in this place, it's not a safety zone. Even here we can end up with a twisted form of spirituality where we form a God who looks like us and does as we wish then even when we gather together and we sing our praises, the reality is we are not worshipping the God of the Bible, we're worshipping ourselves. And Paul's concern for the Corinthians is that they're unaware of that danger, unaware that their idea of spirituality may be more influenced and led by the spirit of the world than the spirit of God. 
And I suspect it's a concern that he would share as he looked across the landscape of the 21st century church. Take, for example, the average Christian bookstore. You go into a Christian bookstore and the largest section in the bookstore by a mile is the spirituality section. And in one sense you think, fantastic, so it should be the things of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, that should fill whole shops. But as you go along the aisle and you look at the titles and you read the books, one after another after another seems to indicate that spirituality is the art of navel-gazing. Spirituality is utterly man-centred. We end up with a spirituality that is a thinly veiled form of idol worship, self-worship. And we're going to see again and again in these chapters pictures of what that looks like and some of them may be too close to comfort. And also we'll see though another call, another leading, another influence altogether. That is the leading of the Spirit of God. And Paul starts that call, that leading for us here in verse 3. Have a look at verse 3 with me. It's such an important verse. I can't overstate how important this verse is to us as all the many things that we will discuss and see over this next month as we look at these chapters. Here is our control verse. Here is the lens through which to see all of that. In fact, so important is it that if you look at your outline, you'll see the first point there, the work of the Spirit, goes up to verse 3. We're not going to get any further than that. So you can scratch out the next two if you're making notes. Uh, We're just going to get to verse 3. We'll get to the other stuff, so don't fear. But we must see this clearly. Here in verse 3, Paul is stripping everything back for us and how we need that. When it comes to questions of spirituality, with all the scaffolding and paraphernalia and the fuss we cover true spirituality with, Paul strips all of that back here in just one verse so that we can see the foundations of Christian spirituality. And here it is summed up for us, verse 3. The mark of true spirituality in a person or a church is this. The mighty work of the Spirit of God in a person or a church is a loud and clear confession that Jesus is Lord. Where it says say in verse 3, it means confession and it's, it's more than just what we do with our lips. It's a whole life thing. And one commentator put it this way. He said it's a self-involved speech act, which is a pretty fancy way of saying this is a confession that involves all of life, not just what I say but what I think, my priorities, my relationships, everything confesses Jesus is Lord. There are two spirits at play in this world and they lead to two radically different confessions. Do you see them there, verse 3? Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you want a clear sign that the Spirit at work in your life is not the Spirit of God but the Spirit of this world, here it is. Your word and life say, Jesus be cursed. Jesus is anathema. You want him far away. Here's my life, Jesus. Here's my sovereign territory. You stay over there. Stay well away. Jesus be cursed. Sounds extreme, doesn't it, those three words? Too extreme, perhaps? Well, no. It is the spirit of this world. Now hear those words in another form spoken on the lips of the angry and dying voice of new atheism, Christopher Hitchens. He said recently, to follow Jesus is the wish to be a slave. To follow Jesus is the desire that there be an unalterable, unchangeable, tyrannical authority who knows and watches your every thought even while you sleep. It is to follow a celestial North Korea, if you will. 
Jesus be cursed. Paul is deliberately painting the extreme for us here. I, I imagine that there would be no one here in this church or perhaps even in the Corinthian church who would ever utter those three words out loud. But the challenge of this verse is that we may never say it but remember a confession is more than just what our lips say. Does our life perhaps betray these very words? A life that is more about making much of ourselves than him. A life that would never describe Jesus as a tyrant like North Korea but a life that perhaps resents that he would call you to make much of him and less of you. Especially here in this place. Might not our actions sometimes betray a desire that this be a place where we are made much of? Paul strips back spirituality for us here and says this challenging truth. Any time and any place, especially here where you feel the tug of self-promotion, the appeal for recognition or a fuss being made of you, any time you feel concerned or angry or resentful that the gospel you heard on Sunday or in your small group or from a brother or sister in Christ is calling you to even more cost, even more diminishing of your significance, your ambitions, your dreams, your prestige, your comfort, your time, with even less recognition. Every time you hear that call, which is the call of Christ crucified, and think, hang on, something's not right, what about me? That's not the spirit of your God, but the spirit of this world, who desires to lead you to the place where you are safe and significant, where you are free to be made much of, a place where perhaps not with your mouth like kitchens but with our hearts and lives we show resentment to the call Jesus makes on our lives and we're reluctant to submit to him as a slave would, as if he was some unchallengeable, unchangeable ruler. Uh, but Paul says that's the truth of it. The truth that the Spirit of God is at work in this world testifying to and verse 3 says this, Jesus is Lord is the truth. And you know you are spiritual, that God's spirit is at work in you if you can confess wholeheartedly, Jesus is my Lord. And not just with your lips, not in some sort of nominal naming of him in a creed, no, but in a world where the spirit of this world holds sway comes a voice of one in whom the spirit has worked to open the shutters and see Christ for who he is. Christ who was crucified, now risen and in fact your Lord and Lord over everything. He has total rule, unchallengeable rule and not in the North Korean sense of rule. That's how our world rules. Here at last, the Spirit declares to us, is one who is fit to rule, who is strong enough to rule, good enough to rule. Here is one worth bowing the knee before. The authentic mark of the Spirit in a person or a church is the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, especially in this place. He, not I, is to be made much of. And we confess that, not with resentment, but with joy. That's the Spirit's great work amongst us. And when he does that work in us, opening those shutters, testifying, showing us who Jesus really is, it should stop us in our tracks and cause us to repent and believe. When the Spirit shows you Jesus for who he is, our heart should say, what was I thinking? That this world, this church, was about my significance. You ever had that experience of uh, you see someone walking towards you and you think they're waving at you and so you sort of, you're hesitant at first but then you start waving back only to find out that someone taps you on the shoulder and, no, they're not waving at you, there's the guy behind you. 
I remember having that feeling at university. I was keen on a girl for a while there. This was before Liz came along. Nowhere near as keen as I was on Liz, but I was keen on her for a while. And there she was walking towards me in the distance across the campus. And I see her waving. I think, wow, she does know who I am. This is fantastic. So I start waving back, only to have my mate tap me on the shoulder and point out her boyfriend walking, <laughs> walking behind me. I've got to tell you, you feel like a goose at moments like that. As you turn and see and think, what was I thinking? Well, for the Christian, that's, the spirit is that guy tapping you on the shoulder. Hey, Andrew, you goose, you are not the centre of attention. That guy behind you is. But this time when you turn and see him, there's no shame in it. As you turn and see him, you see what all the fuss is about. As the Spirit of God, through his word, tells you more and more about Jesus, who is your Lord, you say, ah, that's what all the fuss is about. And let me invite you just for a moment to let the Spirit of God, through his word, do that for you right now, to tap you on the shoulder and tell you who the fuss is for. It's not for you. It's not for me. It's for Jesus who is your Lord. Let me encourage you and feel free not to do this if you don't want to but just to close your eyes for a moment and to hear your spirit, the spirit of God telling you about your Lord. Do you realise who he is? The spirit says to us that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is our final Amen. He is the bread of life. He is our creator, our deliverer, our everlasting God. He is your God. He is the good shepherd and the great shepherd. He is your great high priest. He is your brother who knows. He is the holy one and the hope of glory. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the great I am. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is majestic and mighty and no one can compare to him. He is the only begotten Son of the Father and he is full of grace and he is full of truth. He is the resurrection, the supreme sacrifice, the way, the truth and the life. He is the very word of God made flesh and set up his tent amongst us. He is God with us. He is all of this. And so this church, this world is his theatre to be made much of, to be known and named and enjoyed as Lord. But the spirit of this world would have us, even us here, his people, like Corinth, would have us reduce him to some poor, puny saviour who wins us forgiveness on the cross and then if it's all right, Jesus, if you could shuffle off the stage so I could shine, that would be great. I'd never say that. But why, I ask myself this week, why in this place does my heart swell when praised after I have served? Why do I crave more of that praise? Why do I struggle when I hear criticism? Could it be that I am convinced uh, and I have convinced myself that this is my stage too? To which the Spirit of God says to me, get off the stage, you clown. The show has started and you are not the star. The Spirit of God is at work in this place, utterly opposed to the spirit of the world. He declares loud and clear so that we can echo just as loudly and clearly back, Jesus is Lord, the King we desperately need. We must hear this. We must lock this in mind as we explore the issues of spirituality and spiritual gifts we will over this, these next weeks. The great and single-minded purpose of the Spirit of God is to deepen and widen the knowledge that Jesus is Lord. That's his purpose in your life and in this church. 
When Jesus spoke of the coming day of Pentecost that we celebrate together today, the day that he poured out his spirit on us, he said this of the spirit, he will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. The spirit's work is to make Jesus glorious and that is what we so desperately need because only then will the glories of the world and even our own self-perceived glory fade away in comparison to his And so there it is. That's as far as we are going to get today because I don't want us to lose this wonderful truth in the curiosity and clamour about certain gifts that we will see. We will see them, so don't worry. But for now, hear this. How can you know the Spirit is at work within you and within this church? Simple, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, that is how I know he is at work in this place as we hear that humble and heartfelt confession on one another's lips on a Sunday in our small groups when we meet in the street. I know someone in our church family just this week who heard that same confession on the lips of a 22-year-old girl whose life this week hung in the balance on the eve of an all-day operation that could have gone either way. She heard from that same 22-year-old girl a defiant and joyful and comforted confession that even here in that place, Even at that moment, even with all the questions hanging in the air for her, Jesus is my Lord. There's the definitive mark and work of the mighty Spirit of God. From our hearts, you and I, we together, saying in this place, He is Lord. Yes, we stumble and we drift and we wane, but we know for sure we have no other Lord. He is ours. You cannot say that but for the mighty work of God's Spirit. The same spirit that had the power to reach down into death and raise our Jesus up to life again has raised your dead, dark and mute lips to utter with heartfelt faith, Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together.